0: To turn your bibles to the book of psalms and that's a big book so let me clarify psalm 50 is where we will be you'll be helped if you do open your bibles i know sometimes you do count on me to and i do I, I put things on the screen but because we don't have a screen you will be helped by having your bibles open to psalm 50 Let me begin simply by reading our text, Psalm 50, I'll read from the ESV, please follow along though, in whatever translation you have in front of you. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I, that you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Let's pause one more time to pray before we begin to unpack this psalm together. Father, we have read your word, and now we ask that you would help us to hear it, to understand it we ask that your spirit would help us in that because we can't do that on our own in a way that does what it needs to do and that is to change the way we live, the way we worship. So, Father, would you be pleased to meet us here in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I could sum up Psalm 50 with a noise a sound the sound would be this one do no. no. you hear that? do you like that sound? I've got 10 hours that's a YouTube video of 10 hours of that sound if you're ever interested <laughs> and want to go find it. I'm it I'm not quite sure how many views it's gotten I would guess not too many that's the sound I would use to sum up Psalm 50. Usually that sound is, is louder than that and it usually comes to us when we are asleep. And I thought maybe I should wait a little bit longer in the service and I might need it to, to wake you up a little bit. But it is the sound of an alarm. I hate that sound. In fact, it's probably one of the, my least favorite sounds. Just hearing it, as I heard some of you react to it the same way, just hearing it brings all kinds of bad feelings and, and thoughts. It, it grinds on me. It irritates me. But it does its job. It wakes me up. At the beginning of this pandemic, I decided not to set my alarm. School was in the living room. The dress code was PJs or maybe play clothes at best. So there's no need to get the kids up at a certain time or be anywhere at a certain time. I had no visitations on my calendar because I wasn't allowed to see you. Um, So we just stayed up late and got up and started our day whenever we got up. But you know, eventually I started to feel all out of whack. I actually started to feel sick because of the lack of routine. And I also found that I wasn't getting as much done in the day as I had hoped. Because for me, the early mornings are the most productive part of my day, and I was sleeping through them. So you know what I did. I set an alarm. I set an alarm because I needed to get my life back on track, as as much as I hated the sound of that alarm in the morning, and for the first couple mornings, I, I snoozed it before I finally obeyed it and got up, but after a few days, I was back to getting up at 5.30 or 6, and back to having productive mornings. I hated that alarm, but I needed it. I needed a wake-up call. Psalm 50 is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for the people of Israel to get their spiritual lives back on track. The setting of Psalm 50 is the setting of a courtroom. If you have your Bibles open in verses 1 through 3, you see God, the holy judge, entering the courtroom of Zion. And with his appearance comes a scene of terror, a devouring fire and a mighty tempest accompany him. And then in verse 4, he calls the courtroom to be filled. Heaven and earth are called to enter the room. But then something unexpected happens. As Israel would be reciting this psalm or, or hearing this psalm read, what they would have expected to happen next in the psalm is that they would hear the hammer of justice fall as God judged the nations. Many psalms are cries of Israel crying out to God to judge their adversaries for their evil and for their oppression. And now, at last, in Psalm 50, it's finally going to happen. And, and verse 4 tells us that God does come to judge. He, he does call to heaven and earth above, and the, or to heaven above and the earth below, so that he may judge. But then comes the unexpected part in the last words of verse 4: and that is that he comes to judge his people. Verse 5, gather to me my faithful ones. Other translations say my my consecrated ones, my holy ones, the, the one who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. These are the ones who are on trial. These are the ones who are being judged. Heaven and earth are not there as defendants, but they are there as witnesses. And it is Israel, God's people, who are the ones on trial. Psalm 50 is a psalm of judgment against Israel. Now you might wonder and have been wondering as I read that, why, Sean? Why would you choose a psalm, we're not in a series, so I chose this, why would you choose a psalm of judgment to preach to us? Don't you know how tired and worn down we are from all the negativity around us? Don't you know that all we get whenever we turn on the TV or log into our social media accounts is bad news. Don't you know how irritable we are with having to wear masks and and even meeting outside on an 80 degree day where the sweat is beginning to run down your back, perhaps? Can't you save the judgment psalms for another day? A day when things are good. But it is precisely for those reasons why I think we need to look at a passage like Psalm 50 today. Before we get back to the quote unquote good days before life gets back to normal. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter writes to Christians who are suffering, and he tells them that the suffering Christians experience in this world are our Psalm 50. They are our wake-up call. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? Christian suffering is a reminder of judgment. It's a reminder that judgment is coming. But it's a reminder that judgment first comes not on the nations, not on unbelievers, but it first comes on the household of God. In fact, what Peter is saying is that the suffering that we experience in this world is a form of God's judgment. Not judgment in terms of casting away, but but judgment in terms of purifying us and drawing us near. Not, Not judgment in terms of burning us up and destroying us, but judgment in terms of refining us and strengthening us. One day God will judge those who do not obey the gospel and the outcome will not be pretty. But first, judgment begins at the household of God. What if we, what we are going through right now is the church's wake-up call? Three months of no gathered worship. Three going on four months of no hugs with fellow Christians. Weeks of online service, which just kind of leave a bad taste in our mouth. What if it is God sounding the alarm to wake up? Are we hearing it? Or are we sleeping through it? We keep hitting the snooze button, hoping it will one day go away. You know, I had a sweet mate in college who could sleep through any alarm. It would be buzzing right beside his head for 20 minutes and he'd never wake up. I'd come back from my morning class and I'd turn the head down our hall and I would begin to hear the buzzing sound. And I'd go into his room and find him still asleep with the alarm going off beside his head and he having missed his first class. His alarm did not do any good because he slept through it. Are we sleeping through the alarm? Well, in order to know the answer to that question, we need to hear what the alarm is that is sounding in Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, two charges are brought against the nation of Israel. The first is the charge of heartless worship. Heartless worship. We see that in verses 7 through 15. Israel is offering sacrifices. They're going through the rituals of religion, but their hearts are not in it. The second charge is that of hypocritical living. Hypoc- hypocritical living is in verses 8 through 21. To the wicked, God says in verse 16, what right have you to recite the statutes or take my covenant on your lips? You're walking the talk. You're, you're talking the talk, God says, but you are not walking the walk. You're showing up in church and saying all the right things, but your lifestyle does not match up. Heartless worship and hypocritical living. This is why Israel is being brought to judgment. But both of these have the same foundation. Both of these spring from the same contaminated spring. We see it mentioned in verse 22 where God says, Mark this then, or other translations say, consider this. Think about this. You who forget God. This is the source of heartless worship and hypocritical living. They have forgotten God. And they have forgotten who their god is. This is the foundation of Israel's problems. And that is why the judgment of Israel in Psalm 50 begins with seeing God as the holy judge. Heartless worship, hypocritical living, but first, the holy judge. We see the holy judge in verses 1 through 6. Mention this is the scene of a courtroom and like any trial, the court begins, this court session begins when the judge enters the room. Now, now I haven't been on trial before or been to a trial, but I've watched my fair share of Judge Judy and before that, Judge Wapner on the People's Court. Some of you may remember that. And I know that when a judge enters the room, the the bailiff quickly calls everyone to rise and announces that the Honorable Judge so-and-so has entered the room. Well, that's what we have in verse 1. Only instead of the Honorable Judge so-and-so, the one who is entering the room as judge is God. And He's not simply introduced as the Honorable, but three divine names are strung together to introduce Him. The first words of Psalm 50 are three names of God, one after another. To get the attention of people, the names of God are cried out. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. You hear all three. He is the Mighty One. He is God. And He is the Lord. In the Hebrew, these words are El, Elohim, Elohim and Yahweh or Jehovah. The bailiff is crying out the titles of the judge. And as God enters the room, He is accompanied by a devouring fire and a mighty tempest. This is what we refer to as a theophany, a a visible manifestation of God. It's very similar to the theophany we see at Mount Sinai, where when God comes to meet Moses on the top of the mountain, it is a scene of, of chaos. Exodus 19 tells us that as God descended, there was thunder and lightning. There was a thick cloud that surrounded the mountains. There was trumpets blasting. And when the Lord descended, he did so in a blaze of fire that wrapped the, whole, the entire mountain in smoke. It was a terrifying scene. But do you remember Israel Israel's response at Mount Sinai? Keep him away from us. Moses, you speak to us what God speaks to you, but do not let him speak to us. He will kill us. And what did Moses say in response to their fear? He said, this fear is a good thing because it will keep you from sinning. Exodus 20, 20 says, God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. But notice in Psalm 50 that the, the God of Mount Sinai now dwells in Zion. Verse two, "Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, of beauty, God shines forth. Just this week in my personal devotions, I was reading in Second Chronicles and also in First Kings, where the temple was completed and, and God's presence came and it, it filled the temple. And it says that the temple was so filled with the cloud of the glory of God that the priests could not walk in the door. They couldn't get in the door because God's presence was so thick. The God of Mount Sinai has not changed. Though the people of Israel, they're no longer at Mount Sinai, the God who speaks to them out of Zion is still the same speaking God of Mount Sinai. But Israel has lost sight of that. Verse 22, which we already read, says it tells us that they have forgotten that this is who their God is. And notice in verse 21, the second line of verse 21, one of the mistakes Israel made, God says, is that you thought that I was one like yourself. You thought that I was one like yourself. What an indictment. But what a reality. Not only of Israel's folly, but of the folly of our own day. Someone once said that God made man in his own image and then man returned the favor. We created a God in our minds who was like us. You thought I was one... You thought that I was like one of you. Israel, you have forgotten who I am. Now we don't know when Psalm 50 was written. There are different time frames that are suspected. Some say it was during the reign of King David. Others say Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah, still others say it was during the reign of Josiah. But in each of one of those suggestions or, or guesses about the time frame or estimates about the time frame, there is a common theme. The reigns of, of David and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah were all times when church going was common in Israel. Th- these were the good times of Israel when the temple was filled and frequented, when the law was read and when worship was happening. But in all the church going, Israel lost sight of who it was that they were worshiping. I have a footnote in my Bible that says the I of verse 21 could also be I am. The actual word that we have as I in English is the word Yahweh. The I am. What, What God is saying is you thought that the I am was one like yourself. The I Am who rescued His people. The I Am who made the people of Israel His people. The I Am who brought His people into relationship with Him. You have forgotten who I Am really is. This is so easy for us to do. We become so familiar with God that we lose sight of who He is. We celebrate His mercy is more and we forget that we just sang, Holy, Holy 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 is the Lord. Derek Kinder says that Psalm 50 is a sharp breath of reality. And Israel needed the sharp breath of reality. As do we. Because what happens when you forget who God is is you fall into one or both of the patterns that God addresses that were present in Israel. Patterns of heartless worship, and hypocritical living. First heartless worship in verses 7 through 15. The, the problem for Israel was, wasn't was that, is, that their worship was not happening. Verse 8 tells us that it was. Verse 8 says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Every time God turned around, they were offering Him a sacrifice. The problem wasn't that they weren't sacrificing. Neither was the problem that they were sacrificing. The sacrifices themselves were not the problem. God had prescribed those sacrifices. He had commanded them. Israel was supposed to do them. The problem was was that Israel had forgotten why they were supposed to do them. And it was a direct result of the fact that they had forgotten who God was. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Notice the pronouns in verses 9 through 11. First in verse 9, he says to Israel, you, you come to me offering a bull from your house and goats from your folds or pens, depending on the translation. You come bringing me what is yours. But then notice verses 10 through 11, 10 and 11 and 12. It says, These bulls and goats that you think are yours, you're given to me, they're mine to begin with. Verse 10 for every beast of the forest. Is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Verse 12: If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do you, do you see the problem? With their worship, Israel thought that they were filling a void that God had. God needed their worship. So they gave it to him. They gave him their worship. They offered their sacrifices. The problem that Israel had is that their God, the God of their imagination, was too small. They had a low view of God. We see something similar in the book of Amos where God, through the prophet, chastises Israel, much like we see in Psalm 50. He chastises them for their sacrifices and their noisy celebrations. And then He says in verse 25 of Amos chapter 4, says, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Now, if we could somehow read the tone in these words, I think we would see sarcasm in that statement. Because what God is saying is, is, for 40 years, Israel, you did not offer me sacrifices. Or for 40 years, Israel, did you offer me sacrifices? The answer, no, of course not. And yet, Israel, somehow I survived. Somehow, Israel, I, the the great I am, I survived without your acts of worship. I don't need your worship, Israel. But you do. See, the thing that Israel had forgotten about their worship is that their worship was a sign of the relationship that God had established with them. And the acts of worship reminded them of their place in that relationship. The sacrifices reminded them of their sin and their need for forgiveness. The the offerings of their harvests reminded them of their dependence upon God to provide for their needs. The the vows they made to God reminded them of the call call of God to live in obedience to His commands in order to live under His blessings. Their songs reminded them of God's protection and leading them in the past. Every aspect of their worship was a way of Israel saying to themselves and to God, Oh God, how we need you. But now in turning their worship into mere rituals, what they instead were saying is, Oh God, how you need us. We do these acts. We we go through these motions because we know how much you appreciate them and need them. Often when we talk about our worship, we often talk about it in terms of what we give to God. As a worship leader, I often say, let's give God our worship this morning. When we take up our offering, we'll say, let's give God our tithes. In response to a sermon, we say, let's give God our hearts. And there's something right in that. But fundamentally, the most important transaction that takes place in our worship is not what we give, but what we get. This is why we worship. This is why we gather together like this, because we desperately need to receive something from God. This is why we open up our Bibles in the morning, because we know that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Captain Crunch is not enough. We need more than breakfast to start our day. So we open our Bibles and we say, God, I need you. I need you today. I cannot do this on my own. I cannot handle what lies ahead of me. I can't fight against this sin in my flesh. I need you. And I'm desperate for you. This is fundamentally what worship is. It is a crying out for God. We need you. It is not, God, you need us. So hear our praises. See our good works. Take our gifts and our offerings. The cry of worship that honors God as God is, God, we need you. And it's it's when we worship from that heart condition, the heart condition of desperation, that we overflow with joy at the good news of what he has done for us through the cross. It's when we worship from that place of desperation that our tongues are filled with praises in the midst of our trials because we realize how good God has been to us. It's when we see our utter hopelessness and helplessness in light of our sin that we see the mercy that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ, and we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's when we see that God has redeemed us from the curse of the law that we begin to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. Worship begins with a heart of desperation and dependence because worship begins with a relationship a relationship between us and God that was made possible only through what God did on what, only through what God did through the cross. And when we lose sight of that, worship becomes nothing but mere ritual. It becomes heartless. But not only does our worship become heartless, what often happens, what often follows is that our lives become hypocritical. When our hearts are not aflamed with love for God in our worship, then what often follows is that our our lives are not marked by obedience to God. And that's where God turns next. Hypocritical living in the life of Israel in verses 16 through 21. And notice how he addresses Israel in verse 16. He addresses them, he says to them, But to the wicked. Now, in case you think that God the Judge has moved on to a new case in the docket, He's called someone else to take the stand. Just look at the rest of verse 16. He's still talking to the gathered tribes of Israel. Those who recite His statutes, those who speak His covenant with their lips. These are the same ones who come to the temple to worship. But no longer does He refer to them as His people or His faithful one, or no longer does He describe them in terms of His relationship with them as their God. Instead, he describes them as those who he is against. But now you wicked. But why? Why are they labeled as wicked? Because though they said the right thing on the Lord's day, they lived however they wanted the rest of the days. Psalm 50 verses 16 through 20. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate Discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You you give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. We mentioned Mount Sinai in the opening section, and here we see many of the Ten Commandments, particularly that second table of commandments. Listed here. These people thought that because they were with the people of God, and because they went through the motions of the worship of God, they could simply do away with the commandments of God. At Mount Sinai, as the mountain was shaking and the smoke was rolling, they cried out to God, whatever you do, whatever you ask, we'll do. But now, as God has been lowered in their minds, and lowered in their worship. They cast his words behind their backs. We don't have to worry about those. And here's the terrifying thing about this. They don't even realize that it's a problem. They think everything is alright between them and God. God calls in verse 5 for its faithful ones to gather before him. And here come these guys. Well, I guess that's us. I mean... We worship him in the temple. We, we say all the right words. We sing all the right songs. Faithful ones. That, that's us. We never miss a day at the temple. The doors are open. I'm there. Here I am, God. One of your faithful ones. But what is his response to them? He looks at them and says, I called my faithful ones. Why are the wicked in here? Jesus says something very similar take place in the last day. Matthew 7, verses 21-23, through 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do, do you hear the, the problem in those verses? Do you hear the reason they are turned away at the gate of heaven? It's the, it's the same thing as Psalm 50. They know the right words. Lord, Lord. They, they even go through the right motions. But Jesus says it's only those who reveal a relationship oh. in the way that they live their life. It's only those who do the will of the Father who are led into the kingdom of heaven. And here is the disaster of worshiping a small God. And the disaster of being a part of a community or a church that lifts up a small God. A small God demands nothing of you. You go through the rituals, you do a few good deeds here and there, you scratch God's back and and you're alright. He scratches yours. But the God of the Bible is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a perfect and just God. And and no rituals, no deeds, no religious motions can make you all right. Because He is holy and you are not. He is righteous and you are not. He is perfect and you are not. He is just and He must give justice. And the great, big, holy God of the Bible shows us that the only hope for us sinners is that we come to Him through Christ our only hope is that Christ died on the cross for our sins receiving the punishment for our sins and in place of our sins giving us his righteousness and if we come to God through Christ then our lives cannot not be changed they must be changed they will be changed because the spirit of Christ dwells within us anyone who comes to the father through Christ is made into a new creation they are born again There is evidence in their life, there is a change of life that is noticeable. No longer will we cast God's words behind us, but we will seek to live in obedience to them. No longer will our lives be marked by sin, though we will still sin. But instead they will be marked by godliness and righteousness. To be brought through Christ into a relationship with the Holy God means that every day we seek and we desire to become more and more holy. The question, the the, the wake-up call, the, the blaring alarm that is sounding throughout the world right now is, are we worshiping this big, holy God? Or are we worshiping a God of our own imagination? A God who tolerates sin. And a God who tolerates our empty worship rituals. Psalm 50 ends by reminding us that one day we will stand before this holy God. One day we will not be able to imagine a God that is not the true God because we will stand before him. And Psalm 50 ends with something we might not like to hear. God says, this God says, I will tear the wicked to pieces. This God is the God who is the judge. And our only only hope in that day is that not only is God our judge, as that verse goes on to say, he is also our deliverer. We talk about our faith in terms of salvation. Well, we are those who have been saved but the question is what have we been saved from? Well we might say well, we've been saved from our sins and that's part of it. But ultimately what we are saved from is not our sins alone but where our sins place us. And that is that our sins declare us guilty before the holy judge. What we ultimately need saving from is God. Now that might sound wrong to your ears, but I promise you that that is what the Bible teaches. That is what we've sang this morning. And the reason it sounds wrong to our ears is because we live in a culture that sells us a small God. A God whose main job is to love you and to be nice to you and wouldn't think of tearing anyone to pieces. But this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a holy and just God, and he cannot overlook sins. He must punish sinners. But here is the good news the God of the Bible is holy, but the God of the Bible is love. And not only does He is He the judge who condemns sin but He is the Redeemer who rescues sinners. How did He do that? He did that by sending His only Son, Jesus, to take our sin and to bear the penalty for our sins on the cross. Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice with His whole heart. And He and He alone lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father's will. And now He comes and He offers to us in exchange for our weak worship and our sinful living to come to God through his perfect, to His perfect offering. And if that happens, if that has happened in your life, you will not remain the same. You will, as the psalmist ends, live a life offering to God an offering of thanksgiving and living a life bearing fruit of repentance and right living before God. But none of this will make any sense if we do not first see God for who He really is the holy, righteous, and perfect judge. So we end where we began. As we sang, come and behold him, the one, the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. Make sure the God that you are worshiping is the Holy God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word even when it makes us uncomfortable because we are aware that we need to be made uncomfortable because we know that we are not right before you. In ourselves, by ourselves, in our own works, in our own deeds, in our own hearts, we we are sinners we are in need of a savior father would you keep at the forefront of our minds that need but also keep at the forefront of our minds that though we have that need though our sins are many our savior is greater his mercy is more so father we, we we just ask that we might live in light of who you are this week May, may we hear this, what we're going through right now as an alarm for us to wake up, wake up as individuals, wake up as a church, to not waste more time. Father, for those who are here, who know that they're, they're in the category of those who are not living according to the words that we say here today. Father, may they hear this as an invitation to come and to receive the forgiveness and the transforming power that they can't accomplish on their own, but that you freely accomplish through them and for them, and that has been accomplished on the cross. Father, for all of us, may may we look at our lives and see the areas of our life that are not consistent, the areas of our lives that, that we are living in hypocrisy. We all have them. We, you, you've told us that as long as we are in this life, we will have sin. So we, we know that they're there. But Father, would you help us to confess them, to bring them to the light, that you might purify us, and that we might worship you rightly and truly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.